The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. The first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're joined by an engineer uh, at George Washington University, scholar, professor, um, MOOC purveyor extraordinaire, uh, Lorena Barba. Welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, really. I admire your work and, of course, your brave uh, energy to try to change higher education. Well, some might use a different uh, adjective besides brave, but we won't we won't go into that. But, anyways, it's great it's great to have you on 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 the show. And, Lorena, you're a scholar, a professor. You created George Washington's first MOOC, if I'm not mistaken, and and you author original um, digital learning materials. But let's uh, hop in the time machine. Uh, what were some of the early influences that uh, put you on your current path? Um. Well, let's see, time machine. Uh, my father was a Navy officer, and also he was a private pilot and an instructor. Uh, in fact, he was one of the founders uh, of his flying club. And when I was a girl, he used to take me uh, with him to the flying club. Uh, I used to sit around and chat with the mechanics while he was out flying, and, and, and usually he had a list of students, uh, and so I had many hours there. And I became interested in machines, in planes, and um, soon enough, he started to teach me to fly. Uh, I did my first solo uh, as soon as I turned 17. And I guess this experience was probably the defining factor to becoming an engineer. I'd also helped that I liked mathematics, I liked physics, uh, and I scored highly in the entrance exams to university. And so I ended up in one of the top universities in my country, in Chile. Uh, in uh, studying mechanical engineering. And while I was at the university, um, I, I had very good professors there, uh, all trained abroad in, in Germany and the U.S. Uh, one professor had just returned from his Ph.D. at Courant Institute in NYU, yeah. and he opened my eyes about research and about the possibility of studying in the U.S., and that 
sort of fed my ambition. And here I am. Yeah, those are great stories. And I um, actually, one of my, um, in, in talking to clients about uh, experience, sometimes I'll use the t- television show NCIS, and sometimes people uh, think that the show is a, is a crime show about the Navy, but it's actually about relationships with fathers. Uh, and, and everyone on the show has an interesting relationship with their father. And, and uh, my dad was an engineer too. So we both came by or, or was in, my dad was actually an aeronautical engineer. Your dad was a pilot. And oh, so, wow. you, yeah. And so, uh, so it's, so it's interesting when people are inspired by um, um, parental figures and that has a set of, uh, can have a set of, uh, uh, positives and negatives around it, and I and maybe we've already heard it, but you also know, uh, based on the book, a whole new engineer. We we like to um, like to hear if there are particular unleashing experiences. Your professor, the professor, um, uh, with the experience at the Courant Institute, uh, influenced you, but. Some of some of the things that you're doing in your career are sort of off the beaten path, you know. So that not necessarily uh, doing exactly the things that'll get you nice pats on the head from um, indeed uh, from the from the people in the in the chain. And so when people are unleashed that that way, we we think of that as a good thing in in a whole new engineer and and uh, and and unleashing experiences as central to the way in which higher ed needs to change. But what? What um, what experiences or individuals uh, helped give you the courage to go your own way? Oh well, that's a that's a tough question. I guess I could, with more time, think of several experiences or or persons. But you know, I I have come a long way from growing up in Latin America under a dictatorship and being the only girl in my engineering degree to doing a PhD in the number one university of the world, and that is, of course, Caltech and not MIT. <laughs> the, the rivalry <laughs> there shows up. <laughs> or Harvard. Not the, the, uh, uh, yeah, the, the telephone lines are lighting up. People from the institute are yes, calling yes. as we speak, we'll but go the, ahead. The MIT versus Caltech will uh, flare up the internet right now. Um, I'm going to so sing the I, Michigan Flight have... song if we go any further. <laughs> go ahead. So, well, I, I have accomplished things that I have set out to do, but it always took a lot more effort and a lot more time than I ever anticipated. And so I, I've learned to be resilient. I guess I can't help being rebellious. And uh, what gets you to your place in life is your whole history. Yes. Yeah. So, and, and so, so I heard the term rebellious. So that, so actually you like doing things that other people don't just because. Is that, am I well, hearing that right? Uh, rebellious, uh, well, uh, re- rebellions always have a cause. Uh, yeah. And so in, 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 in my case, I would say that it's, it's not just because, it's not a teenager rebellion. It's, it's, yeah. it's a, a belief in yourself. And uh, sometimes the uh, advice you get, uh, I, I bet you hear this often in this program, advice you get might lead you into a traditional path. And um, you need to feel free to take it or leave it. And uh, the rebellion there is to to... Be ready to take your own path, and in particular, as an academic, uh, the in, in, the advice is very clear that you should focus on 
uh, only at this point in time, focus yep. only what gets you more publications and what gets you more funding that will make the administration happy. Uh, this is this is not the way it has always been at, at university or academia. This is this is really a 20th century phenomenon, um, and so it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I. I I am uh, an educator. I, uh, I, I, I like to change uh, the world around me through my interactions with people. And if I only focus on that one thing that is going to get me the brownie points with the dean, I'm afraid that the change I can make is not going to be as, as, as transformative. Um, yeah. No, that, that, then that's, that's, that's a terrific answer. And, and so it's, it is interesting that, um, yeah, you made an interesting comment about oh, how did we get this way in a twenty century, 20th century phenomenon? It seems to me that it's a nineteen eighties kind of phenomenon. There were people who were deans of engineering, or and then becoming presidents of universities. Um, some, many of them, names that are quite prominent that were pushing towards this kind of narrow um, researchism and more money, more p- publications. And some of the ability to manage the polarities of teaching versus research, prof- professorial expertise and reputation versus student unleashing and success, um, the ability to manage some of those polarities in um, creative and friendly ways went went by the wayside. And so I, th- I think it's a, you know, it, it in many ways started after, I think if you trace the history, the funding of, of re- federal funding of research that started largely after the war with science, the, the publication of the report Science and Endless Frontier was a big, a, a big stimulus to that. And it, over the 50s and into the 60s and then in 70s, uh, it just seemed like it went Went kind of it went kind of crazy, and now I'm actually quite happy that I'm no longer a research <laughs> professor at a major research university. Kind of on that on that treadmill, um, it just seems like it's the the amounts of money and the number of papers just seems kind of mindless. Yes. Uh, comment. Yes. Yes, you're right. Uh, and so, so, you, so you mentioned the recent times, but also you went back to the 50s and 60s when uh, things changed in, in engineering education. Because uh, after the war, of course, a lot of funding went into research in the United States. It changed uh, very fundamentally how uh, engineering departments viewed their mission. And deans uh, of engineering departments started to pursue the federal funds uh, very uh, as one of their main missions. But over time, um, those many of those funding sources became more competitive, dried up um, some of them, and uh, the, the, the support, the, the financial support to uh, higher education decreased so that it, tuition, of course, has gone up and um, the, the, the need of the university departments to get funding from research has been more more critical. Um, so that has taken away the uh, focus on the teaching teaching mission of the university, uh, as you know. And so you are today advised in no uncertain terms that should not that you should not be spending much time in teaching, uh, uh, which is sad to be honest. And 
I've discovered that teaching uh, is, is not only rewarding, but is a way that we can exert important change in the world when you see young people becoming inspired and, and, and in the future having productive careers as engineers, certainly we are making a, a lasting contribution in our society and, and um, I, I care about that. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, and so anyways, it's, it, and let's actually kind of dig in a little bit. You know, you're, um, you're, you're in the middle of, uh, uh, of your academic career, and uh, I think you know, you're associate professor with uh, tenure. You're a computational uh, fluid dynamicist, but uh, you know, looking at your background and the kinds of things you do, there's kind of an interdisciplinary uh, edge to the things you do. What are, um, but not everyone on the, not everyone listening to the show necessarily understands the computational fluid dynamics. So what, you know, what is, what is the work that you do and what kinds of projects are you involved in? We, uh, I have a, a research group uh, where uh, I train doctoral students uh, with uh, the use of computing as a research tool. In fluid dynamics, uh, of course, there's a set of equations that we know uh, can represent the way that fluids uh, move and interact with uh, objects uh, like airplanes or like uh, uh, cars or any, any object moving in, in a fluid. And uh, solving those equations is not really possible with pure just mathematics. And the only way to to, to describe in detail a situation where uh, fluids interact with, with the world is uh, through solving those equations computationally. So you use the computer uh, as, the, as your only uh, hammer, really, to, to crack that, that, uh, that nut. Um, and there's uh, a number of skills that are required, of course, uh, representing equations in a way that the computer can understand uh, what you what you want to do is is one step. So writing numerical methods, uh, we talk about numerical methods uh, as a way of describing mathematics um, uh, for 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 algorithms to be uh, written, and then certainly being able to write computer programs uh, in a in a professional way with uh, modern computational tools and and, and software engineering environments um, is is part of it, and uh, then in being able to produce uh, some results and interpret those results usually involves uh, creating uh, visualizations. Uh, it's very important to know how to use visualization to explore um, uh, a physical system and um, be able to then have a conversation with uh, your computational representation of the world so that you can uh, inquire and, and, and discover things. Through uh, through that dance with your computational um, simulation. It's interesting that how. Excuse me. It's interesting how I just went to the eye doctor this morning, and it's just and the amount of uh, uh, the amount of visualization that was done of my um, my retina and the various uh, and the lens and the cross sections. So just amazing what uh, computational techniques, measurements have done, and, and certainly computational fluid mechanics is is one of those. Just, uh, you know, maybe to, um, 
got about another minute left in the in the uh, segment, so I'm just curious if if in terms of the you know so you see uh, computational fluid dynamicists would often describe airplanes or automobiles, the reaction of automobiles to engineering objects. But you've done some some things that were sort of non-traditional objects. What's the what's say just uh, so give our reader or our listeners a uh, a sense. So what's maybe one of the most uh, unusual or interdisciplinary kinds of things that you've done with computational fluid dynamics. I bet that your listeners would uh, love knowing about uh, our work with uh, flying snakes. Um, this was uh, um, this. It still is one of the projects that we are working uh, on. The idea of uh, understanding how a snake, well. They don't. They're not. They don't. They're really gliders, not not active flyers. But there are some snakes in the uh, in areas like Malaysia and so on that jump from trees and are able to glide very very well for long distance um, to the ground without without uh, hurting themselves. And um, uh, we have done some simulations with the actual geometry of the snake's body and uh, try to understand how they're able to generate lift with their bodies. And uh, for this work, we interacted with um, a biologist and uh, people doing experimental fluid mechanics as well. Uh, the biologist, Jake Soha, is in Virginia Tech, and he's an expert in flying snakes. And it has been very rewarding to do that kind of interdisciplinary work. We've become very interested in flying animals in my group. And uh, it turns out that flying in nature is a lot more complicated than it is uh, for just our fixed-wing uh, aircraft. So there's a very interesting set of uh, problems that we can work on as engineers interacting with biologists there. No, that's great. No, that's a, I, I love that example, and, and thanks for sharing it with uh, the audience. I, I, I really want to dig in uh, now into some of the work that you're doing with the educational side of this, the ways in which computation is changing the way you work with students. Well, why don't we, uh, well, let's take a break and come back and talk about that after the break. How's that sound? I'd be glad to. All right, great. Thanks. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Lorena Barba. Stay with us, and in the next segment, we're going to talk about the way uh, her work in CFD is cha changing uh, the way she thinks about teaching. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. The second segment is sponsored by Three Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership to help transform your organization. And um, you can find out more about Three Joy at threejoy.com. And you can ask uh, 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 the guest questions or, or make comments about the show on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. And we're we're back with Lorena Barber from uh, George Washington University and in uh, Washington, D.C. And so, Lorraine, before the break, we were talking a little bit about computational fluid mechanics and and um, uh, and, and talking about computational fluid mechanics, there's been a movement towards uh, what's been called computational thinking, and, and, uh, and I know this is a subject near and dear to your heart. What's computational thinking, and, and why does it matter to you? Well... Dave, computing has become really pervasive in our lives today, but a lot of its power has sort of been taken away from us regular people and, and, and concentrated into products and apps, right? So most people don't really use computers very powerfully. The real power of computing as a tool for thinking and creating is still something that we can harness in education. Uh, for uh, the idea of computational thinking, I take great inspiration in Seymour Papert, who was a um, um, one of the uh, forefathers of uh, artificial intelligence. He actually worked with Marvin Minsky at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Lab. And uh, he dedicated decades of his life to study how computers could be used for education, especially with young children and uh, in, in educational technology in general. Now we hear computational thinking used, uh, explained uh, as um, thinking like a computer scientist or having a skill set to solve problems that is based on, say, uh, decomposing a problem or, say, finding patterns. But this explanation is a little bit um, reductionist, uh, and it takes away the essence that uh, Papert saw in using computers um, to, to provide a rich set of representations of knowledge, of an idea, and in that way give us access uh, to complex ideas uh, in in a more powerful way than with our naked brains. And so computational thinking is really using computing as an extension of our minds, or uh, there's a Berkeley professor, um, Andrea Di Sessa, that calls it material intelligence. Just like we use mathematics to understand the physical world, uh, we can use computing to understand many difficult concepts. Um, dynamics, for example, you know, with a simulation, we can understand dynamics, projectile motion um, at a young age without having to know calculus. Uh, so it is powerful to use computing as a representation tool to help us learn. Yeah, and and, um, and I, th- I mean, I think that that's a, you know, so you trace the history and, and of course, of course, the uh, the people who were calling in before from the institute are calling in to remind you that 
that uh, that was at MIT and not uh, <laughs> not, at, not at Caltech. But um, but actually thinking about it, but you know one of the, it's interesting. I, I think it's so interesting that all these things are called thinking. You know, so there's systems thinking and there's design thinking and computational thinking. And I think I think all of them have something to ta- speak to us and. And, and I think they're in part, they're talking about a systems perspective and getting your hands around something with some particular perspective. But as a, as a leadership coach, it's interesting to me that it's always thinking as opposed to feeling or being. And, and actually, one of the things I think that's special about computers, and others have said this, I think there's this nice video on compute. I think it's compute.org where Mark Zuckerberg and and Bill Gates talk about getting their first computing and how that was an unleashing experience for them. To to me, one of the things that's so interesting about computational worlds is it's this nice self-contained world that you you can have individual and complete control and get your hands completely around it in a way that's, um, when you, when you do that, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it's, it's, it's empowering. And, and so I'm, I'm, um, not that the thinking part is is not interesting, but decomposition is, is at least as old as Descartes and um, and you know the sixteen twenty uh, sixteen twenty paper on on decomposition. So, um, isn't isn't the isn't the interesting part of computational thinking somewhere else than than the things that that we usually ascribe to it? Well, when we talk about computational thinking, we are talking about using uh, computers to to forge ideas. So it's in the idea world, it's in the concepts. But computing systems, of course, play a lot lot of other roles in our lives today. Um, We use uh, computers to to communicate with people. We we, we use computing systems. Uh, Even in the early days of artificial intelligence were were seen as a possible... um, uh, intermediary between humans, and today with uh, the internet journey, we see computing systems uh, intervene in our social lives. So there are there's computational thinking, and there's also other ways of using computers uh, uh, to help us coordinate and to help us. Uh, and it, it, there's many ways, of course, that computing systems can be used by. Um, by humans uh, in organizations, in communications, and society as a whole. Yeah, and then and along those lines, of course, one of the ways that um, technology, computer technology, is is being spoken about as is in the realm of education. And um, you you've been a purveyor of uh, digital instructional materials. You've also um, uh, started the first. Uh, uh, MOOC at uh, George Washington University, uh, independent of of uh, some of the major uh, MOOC systems. So, um, what are your thoughts about comp- computation, computers, and education in connection with some of those efforts? Well, um, computing systems can can help us uh, uh, can mediate and can help us coordinate with with other humans. That's that's. That uh, was recognized early on, as, as you know, by, by Fernando Flores, who wrote The Coordinator, and, um, and uh, as a work group scheduling tool early on when computers were big, big uh, refrigerator-sized machines. Um, and 
in an education is a coordination between humans and uh, it's it's more than just transferring information certainly and when computer systems are well designed um, to enhance the interaction between humans, uh, I think they can be very effective for, for, for learning. Unfortunately, the uh, online, not the online education uh, in general uh, community, but, but, but the, the subset that has grown out of the um, uh, um, hype over the, the MOOCs uh, since 2012 um, and, and, and certainly the corporate uh, um, influences in that, in that community uh, have um, uh, reproduced on the online medium the traditional forms of education from the classroom, yeah. focusing on lectures, focusing on transfer of information, and ignoring the power of, uh, or the potential power of the computer for forging uh, connections among people and between people and uh, knowledge and, and ideas and so on. And in that sense, uh, many of the online uh, uh, education providers uh, have uh, really ignored the things that, uh, you know, Fernando Flores and Terry Winograd were talking about in their, um, their book, Understanding Computer Cognition, uh, in the 80s, uh, that uh, really computers uh, can mediate uh, in our in our world in, 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 in a much more powerful way. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to do with the MOOC was show that we don't need to rely on uh, these um, traditional providers because they were they, uh, solidified to a very traditional model of education. Um, uh, and we could reclaim as educators the online medium for continuing to innovate and continuing to, uh, to ha- control the educational uh, creative process uh, as, as educators rather than give it away to, well, companies really because most of these are uh, companies, even the only nonprofit uh, of those providers uh, still has some sort of corporate uh, ways of operating. I well, okay. still That's think that, that universities need to need to need to. Uh, it's a part of our core mission, and we need to take this back. And and that's and that's laudable. And and of course, um, at least on this show, we don't necessarily view uh, for-profit enterprises as evil, uh, much as the outgoing administration has. And and there can be evil done by. It seems to me that there's a good bit of evil being done by. Um, universities that that ignore their students in large part um, uh, as is happening now in in our times uh, at, to um, uh, to to build their own reputations at the at the expense of um, um, the students that they purportedly serve for very in some cases for very large sums of money. So their evil can be done by both profit and for profit and non profit organizations both. So Certainly. Um, You're right about that. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. It, it, I'm less. But I, I actually am interested in. I agree with you that the, the there is a sense in which uh, uh, the some of the big the big boys, uh, edX and Udacity and so forth, have headed in the direction of just putting lectures online. And so, okay, fine, we can have a large 
large MOOCs. We've had Barb Oakley on the show a couple of times with um, hundreds of thousands or millions of people. That's those are impressive numbers. Um, but but the point that you were making before about connecting people and how do we um, how do how how can we use technology to increase our humanity and increase our connection and presence to one another. And so I'm curious, what is it that you, as uh, you know, what? Let, let's be fairly concrete about this, unless a little a little less abstract. What what's your what's the name of your MOOC, and what do you do differently in it to to facilitate that kind of connection? Well, the name of uh, the MOOC is um, uh, Practical Numerical Methods with Python, and yep. we uh, the, the content itself is is a standard graduate material in numerical methods. But I think what is different is that uh, we take a lot of inspiration from the open source world and the open source ethos, um, yep. open source collaboration. And, uh, you know, people don't understand that open source is not just about uh, free software. It's not just about the uh, possibility of accessing um, uh, apps or software uh, or, or even just being able to see the code, which is, you know, what, what you imagine as open source. Um, it's not just about being able to read the programs. Uh, there's a culture in open source uh, that, it, that is, has created great value. People actually, if you can imagine, uh, the open source projects that we have that many people around the world have come together and volunteered their work to create great value together, sometimes without even knowing each other in person. It's really incredible. And um, there are norms in this culture for collaborating and for valuing uh, the work of others that have made it very effective. So I um, see in the open source world a training ground for effective teams. Um, uh, it has tools of the trade that have implemented this culture into computational platforms that actually make us more effective as a group. Um, it's, it's an incredible example of coordination for action, using uh, our favorite uh, words there uh, from Flores, through computational platforms that can support us uh, to create value together. So there's so much inspiration that we can take from, from there. Um, the platforms like GitHub, for example, that are used for people to coordinate their work together online to uh, produce open source projects um, are very powerful and I would say have um, um, implemented, have made real some of the coordination rituals that uh, build trust in, in, in the world without perhaps, I'm sure that without knowing really, without I asked somebody at GitHub um, some time ago if uh, he, they even had discussed uh, Winograd and Flores' book uh, on understanding computers and cognition, and he said no. So I'm pretty sure that it was a coincidence uh, that they have um, implemented uh, in their um, collaboration rituals very effective patterns uh, of, of conversations for action. And so, okay, so one thing I'm hearing is that so the use of effective tools like GitHub helps you build community and collaboration in your course, if that's yes. a fair summary. 
what other what practices are in the course to say um, is it is it the assignments that you give or um, is there uh, how do you um, so and these are people that may be watching the course from from wherever so are, are how how do the how do people array themselves socially how do they interact with you and in, in what ways are you know the some of the things that we miss in 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 person kinds of classroom uh, either replaced or re- replaced with something else in in your MOOC. Well, I think that I'm, I'm talking beyond that uh, particular MOOC right now because okay. um, certainly my my uh, the amount of time that that I have uh, dedicated to to that has. Um, decreased after the first run, and although it's still live, uh, I, I guess the community building aspect of it, I, I certainly could invest more in that, um, but I've had to uh, share my time with, with other projects. But sure. more broadly, the uh, open source um, ethos that we adopt and take inspiration from in the course, I think that uh, we can more generally take inspiration from in in education uh, because the open source uh, culture is um, a commitment-based culture. And um, as we know today, information is readily available to us and there's very little sense in the model of education that simply focuses on transferring information to students. And so what is it that we should be teaching uh, young people today that will make them well-rounded and and, and powerful uh, as self-learners in the future? Uh, I think part of that is uh, being able to coordinate in teams, being able to um, build uh, trust through... um, uh, collaboration and commitment um, um, and, 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 and so on. And an open yeah. source culture has that. Uh, open source culture is a culture of uh, commitment. Uh, it's a culture that uh, also um, yeah. values the free contributions of, of others. And um, there, there's several features of it that we can take inspiration for in education. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, wanna, I, I think we want to dig into this a little bit more. We need to take a little bit of a break, but let's, after yes. the break, why don't we come back? I think we want to talk a little bit about the speech acts of requests and commitments, the formation of agreements and their effect on the, uh, what that does to trust, that cycle that is so important in Flora's work, and then, and then talk about how we... Um, We've been talking about using it in a classroom setting, but how do we use that also in an educational reform setting? Let's take that up after we come back from break. All right. Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Lorena Barba. In the next segment, um, I want to talk about about speech acts, trust, and then how do we use this stuff in in, uh, making transformational educational change. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call one 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming webinar. Join us this week, Wednesday, uh, 18 January at 4 p.m. Eastern for our webinar entitled Four Keys to Ineffective Educational Change or How to Botch Transformation Without Really Trying. Learn the four mistakes that people make in modern change initiatives and how to overcome them. And learn how you can join uh, Big Beacon's growing community of learning action teams. Uh, go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And so we're back with Lorena Barba from uh, uh, George Washington University in, um, in uh, Washington, D.C., getting ready for the uh, turnover, of, hopefully a peaceful turnover of uh, presidential power at the end of the week. But, uh, Lorena, we were talking, um, talking a little bit in the last segment about uh, requests and commitments, and a week or so ago we had Chalmers Brothers on. We had a nice, we were talking, we were doing a big, big deal on speech acts, and, of course, speech acts are... Um, these utterances that, that we intend um, um, when we communicate with people. And, and as you were saying, teamwork is composed of requests and commitments and teamwork works or doesn't work uh, to the degree to which we issue clear utterances about what it is that we want, um, um, what future event are we talking about, what constitutes um, a satisfactory performance of the future event, um, uh, what's the, what cultural assumptions are we both making, what common context do we have, do I, am I actually speaking with someone or communicating with someone who, who, who cares about what I'm saying or do they not give a care um, and, and vice versa, do I care about the actual thing that I'm asking the person to do and then that's what we form agreements with those requests and commitments and then then action takes place and that action is either satisfactory or unsatisfactory and, and we can loop around a little bit. Um, but I, I thought, you know, the point that you're making, I think it's, I think it's a great point. And, and as you say, that, you know, people that, that write these systems aren't 
even necessarily aware of the underlying theory of what they're doing, but underneath the hood of great collaboration systems is an understanding of requests, commitments, agreement, um, and fundamentally another um, uh, another thing uh, that we have trouble talking about, and that is trust. Comment. Well, um, certainly I think that the um, work of Wittegrad and Flores uh, points to some foundational skills for yep. the modern age. And I do think that the work should better inform how we educate um, the younger generation, uh, particularly because access to knowledge is, is, is now on demand and from, the foundational skills that remain have to do with um, how to work collaboratively to create value together. And um, what I was saying in the previous section is that uh, the open source world has developed ways to work openly and contribute creating value together. And the way that it has done is um, structuring the conversations uh, among contributors. For example, the idea of a uh, the idea of a pull request is a fundamental um, collaboration. Uh, ritual that happens in open source projects where someone who is not part of a project can make some changes or propose some changes and then request to the owner of that open source project to incorporate those changes into the into the main um, software and and the way that this is done through the um, um, collaboration platforms like github uh, is a ritual, is a ritual that uh, turns out to be very effective. So what I um, propose is that um, when we're talking about teaching programming, uh, that is only uh, one aspect of the world of computing and that by incorporating the ethos and uh, practices of open source, we also teach some of those language rituals that, that, that make people effective. Um, and the, the, the speech hacks are very powerful uh, rituals, and uh, perhaps it's hard for people to um, study this and know immediately how to apply them, and having a... Um, playground to start learning the, 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 the rituals and explaining them later, I think, is more effective. Uh, in fact, uh, Fernando Flores is now using um, video games uh, to, as a playground to show um, people when they're coordinated well, how, how to work in small teams. And, and, and so, for me, uh, using the open source uh, world as a um, as an educational um, uh, platform, as an educational model, uh, is, is is very inspiring. And I, of course, bring to this the, the knowledge of having had uh, um, having studied and read Fernando Flores, and having um, um, been at a workshop early on in my. Uh, career when I was an engineering student, I had the opportunity to be at a workshop that uh, taught his um, um, uh, methods, and yeah. uh, and so I could bring these things together, and I could understand from that point of view why open source, and especially tools like GitHub, have been so effective. 
Yeah, and that's, I think, you know, one of the interesting interactions and all that and heads over. And again, so we, it, it seems like we have an easier time talking about the rational parts of this, the linguistic parts and the speech acts and, and decomposing speech acts into various pieces. But when, when we get on the more emotional territory of variables like trust, then you could still decompose, but we're now, now we're talking about, um, something that's not quite in the bailiwick of computer scientists or aerospace-mechanical engineering. It, um, and so, for example, the, you know, so one of the things that um, the cycles that Fernando talks about is the cycle of requests and commitments, and suppose request, uh, requests and commitments result in a successful agreement that is successfully performed. What's the... Um, What's the effect of that on on trust between the the parties to the the request and the commitment? And of course, normally you would say, well, if the thing worked out, the trust goes up. But but then oftentimes we end there. But but uh, this work heads in the direction of saying, well, asking the question, well, what is trust? And and trust. In, at least in some versions of the model, turns out to be a f- three or fourfold assessment of of the the other party's sincerity, reliability, competence, and caring. And so, um, and so we can actually start to um, we can start to actually put some meat on those bones. And instead of just vaguely talking about quote-unquote soft skills, we can actually talk about things that are quite rigorous. Uh, well, because uh, it's easier to talk about the speech acts that have to do with, uh, with, with um, action and uh, coordination to, to, for work, like requests and promises and offers and assessments. But there are also um, aspects, there, there are many types of conversations, right? There's conversations for actions where we know that uh, we want to be effective in creating uh, things together, creating value together. But there are also conversations for, for possibility, um, you know, where, where the mood, where, where creating a mood, for example, is extremely important when you want to. And, and that is another thing that leaders have to do. When you have a team and you want to create a mood so that the team will be visualized possibility uh, of, creating a different kind of reality, um, you have to create a setting where they believe in that. So in that sense, Fernando Flores also says that leaders are, are kind of like poets because you, you have to first imagine that future uh, that you want to bring people to, a, and then you can get to action. Yeah. Lorena, I wish we had more time. We're, we're, we're headed towards a close here, I guess. Like to give you the last word, and at sort of, you gave this nice talk at um, at PyCon about the about changing education. But how how does this how does these ideas of requests and commitments, things like GitHub, change the possibilities for us in changing education? And and then give you a minute or so to talk about that, and then and and then let people know where they can get hold of of your work. Well, one aspect we haven't talked about is, um, which is also a value in the open source world, is the idea of transparency and, and, and openness and sharing, right? Uh, in education, we're not used, uh, of course, there's the open 
uh, online courses and MOOCs, and that brought a whole new world of, of materials online. But uh, greater participation in open education, in transparency and uh, communicating with others is something that I think could could be very valuable. For example, um, one thing that we did in, in the MOOC was invite other instructors that were teaching similar courses to collaborate. And this idea of collaboration in education, in teaching, like we have in research, is not something that has caught on, really. The idea... Usually you have, you know, every instructor teaching fluid mechanics in an engineering school does their own course. There's no, there's no real uh, collaboration. And I think through the, through the Internet we can share uh, what we do and we can come together uh, and, and collaborate in education. And that requires willingness to share and transparency. And where can people find out more? What uh, website can they go to? Well, I, I, I am on Twitter, and I um, share these ideas and others through Twitter, and certainly through Twitter you can find the other links to our website. We have a GitHub account for all of the educational materials that uh, we create with my students, um, and um, that's our Barber Group organization account on GitHub, and we have a web page, and, um, and I hope uh, to hear from you on Twitter. Great. Thanks, Lorena. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to Lorena Barba for joining the program. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.